So welcome everyone to Science Society and of course a special welcome to you Anna and um, Dr. Anna Schröder. She is a postdoc at the Institute of Physiology at the University of Freiburg and um, she in her postdoc stage had already so many um, grants and fellowships. Um, she got the um, the BBRF Young Investigator Grant, which is a pretty big deal, I think, at least <laughs> And then she had the fellowship, Marie Curie Fellowship, and um, Alexander von Humboldt Foundation Fellowship, and Peter and Traudel Engelhorn Foundation, and yeah. EMBO. I mean, that's so impressive. So. Thank you. It's been so much time grant writing. I know, but most people spend all this time and get maybe one if they're lucky. <laughs> so this speaks to the, you know, impact of your research and and skills you have. So um, yeah, I mean it's really impressive, and you know, so different foundations think your work is really important and important to fund. So, um, you know, on top of a cell uh, publication. So congratulations. And, Thank you so much. <laughs> and um, yeah, before we start going into your research, like how did you discover your, you know, passion, interest, and skill to do this type of research? Was it something you always wanted to do? Was it, you know, did it come later on that that interest by a class you maybe took or a professor or a teacher that you had? So, yeah, if you could tell us, um, that would be wonderful. Thank you. Um, so I would say that I got interested in science quite late. Um, so it was really sort of late in high school that I had a really great teacher for chemistry and biology. They got me really interested in science in general. Um, and then it was in college that uh, my interest in science really grew and I joined a biochemistry lab that was focused on neuroscience applications. And this really catalyzed my interest in the brain um, and convinced me that neuroscience was what I wanted to do. Um, and in terms of the actual sort of uh, field that I'm working in now, um, I really only started working on this topic during my postdoc. Um, in the years before, all my work was actually uh, in molecular neuroscience, so I, I kind of uh, dramatically changed fields for my postdoc. Um, and I feel like the types of questions that I'm working on now are sort of the questions that really got me interested in neuroscience in the first place. So sort of this question of how the brain at the circuit level mediates higher level cognitive functions and behavior such as such as memory. Um, and so I feel very privileged to be able to work on this topic now using sort of the array of technologies that are now available for studying um, neural activity at the single cell level in, in vivo in awake behaving animals. Yeah, that's really interesting um, that um, so it must have been quite good teachers and good school and labs that you worked in that kind of, you know, supported you and like, 
yeah, kind of woke up this 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 interest in the field. So that's really wonderful to hear that it worked out that way because you know now we are lucky and that you work in neuroscience and and um, yeah we we expand our knowledge through you. So um, that's wonderful and. Um, <laughs> you alluded you know how you switched the fields to to um do this type of work in vivo um to do this specific project was it um was it hard to get these grants or you know did it um you know some people come here and say oh i worked right away or people didn't believe me for a long time <laughs> or it was an accident and then we wrote this grant um was it something you know you planned doing for a while or was it maybe you know a, a discovery that kind of led to this full project then was it easy to get a grant like easy but you know like did you had to write grants many times until it got funded so yeah if you could just give us a little bit of background about this project thank you so um, so the grants that I started my postdoc with, um, I applied for three grants sort of at the end of my PhD to, to fund the start of my postdoc. And I, I got very lucky because all of them were funded. Um, um, I think that the, the project um, was really promising from the beginning. So I think that's probably what motivated these funding organizations to um, sort of uh, invest in, in the idea. Um, and I, I think that I felt very convinced of it from the beginning that it was something that was really worth exploring. Um, in terms of the grants that I got later in my postdoc, um, um, there I also had to come up with sort of a, a new idea for my for my future work. And there I definitely like struggled with different uh, proposal versions to come up with the next idea. But it's sort of like this uh, aha moment when you realize you've come up with the you know the project that you want to focus on and i think when you're able to convince yourself of it it's easier to convince the funding organizations that it's something that they should also be interested in um, but for the project that i'm going to talk about today that was you know that i worked on at the beginning of my postdoc um, we had sort of i think promising reasons to believe that it was really worth pursuing so at that time um, the lab where i'm doing my postdoc now had just collected a data set that um, suggested that the projection that I investigated in this paper um, existed. And we had a reason to believe that it could be really interesting um, because it was a, a long range inhibitory projection. And around that time, this was back in 2018, um, a body of literature had just been published that had shown that these types of projections in the hippocampus play a really important role in memory encoding. And so I was really inspired to figure out whether similar projections might exist in neocortex that would be involved in memory in those circuits. Um, and I thought that the Zona Inserter could be a really interesting candidate for exploring that question. And luckily the funding organizations agreed that this was worth it. Um, and uh, yeah. Well, I'm I'm happy too that they agreed. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
it's really wonderful work so yeah congratulations again and i'm glad everything worked out so and for everyone the paper that anna will talk about um is uh, pinned on top of the room uh, you should be able to just access it and the stage is yours anna thank you thank you so much um yeah feel free to to download the paper and and go through it as i'm talking um, of course, this is going to be very casual. Um, so as I sort of already alluded to in the introduction, um, sort of the core question of this project was that we were interested in understanding whether long-range inhibition um, in neocortical circuits might support memory. And um, to provide a little bit of context, so um, up until now, the only uh, projections that had been studied in the context of memory encoding in neocortical circuits were um, long-range excitatory projections deriving from um, a range of different sources, such as the amygdala, the higher order thalamus. And a lot of those systems had been shown, um, so like really beautiful work has been done in those systems that um, show their importance for memory. Um, but a lot of them have been shown to sort of undergo um, have very common mechanisms um, in the sense that a lot of them, tar these projections target both excitatory and inhibitory cells in the cortex. Um, they undergo sort of a common regime for memory encoding um, in the sense that um, if you compare um, responses to a given sensory stimulus before and after learning, um, in these long-range excitatory projections, a lot of them show sort of a positive stimulus response that undergoes positive potentiation, so it gets stronger. Um, and this is all very, um, uh, very interesting, but we were interested to understand whether inhibition might sort of uniquely contribute to, to these mechanisms, if it might undergo, um, if there might be sources of long-range inhibition that would sort of uniquely um, undergo sort of different experience-dependent plasticity that would contribute to memory. Um, and so we decided for this project to focus on projections from a very mysterious subthalamic nucleus called the zona inserta, which um, in Latin uh, literally translates to, uh, it from, uh, to the zone of uncertainty. Um, and this is a name that it was given um, more than a hundred years ago. And I would say that it's um, still sort of deserving of this name in the sense that um, it's become increasingly studied in recent years. We, we have, we're starting to build a fundamental understanding of some functions of the zona inserta, but it is very much underexplored. Um, um, it's a very heterogeneous uh, nucleus in that it's composed of many different cell types um, but most of these cells are GABAergic neurons um, that uh, um, send projections really across the brain. Um, and so we were interested to know whether it sends projections to the neocortex and again, um, whether this inhibitory source might um, help to shape memory encoding in sensory neocortex. And um, if we focus on figure one of the paper, so the, the, the goal of this figure was mostly to sort of map and, and identify this circuit. So for example, um, in panel A, here I performed a retrograde tracing experiment from different regions of sensory neocortex. 
So, um, uh, you know, injecting different tracers in either visual, auditory, or somatosensory cortices of the mouse brain, and then looking in the zona inserta. And what we found was really interesting um, in the sense that we found that the zona inserta in adult mice actually targets all three of these regions. But the vast majority of neurons that we found that were labeled were actually auditory cortex projecting, indicating that um, for whatever reason, the zona inserta might sort of preferentially contribute to auditory behavior. Um, and so this was one of the reasons that for the rest of the paper, we decided to focus on the auditory cortex projections. Um, in panels um, C to D, this is just showing that um, when we inject retrograde tracers in the auditory cortex and then look in the zona inserta of mice where GABAergic neurons express an M-cherry protein in the nucleus, um, that this reveals that most of the neurons that are sending these projections are um, indeed um, GABAergic. And you can also see this on the panel in panels F through I, where here I've done of, I've injected um, a viral vector expressing a flexed reporter protein in the zona inserta of GAD2 cremice. So this is expressing this uh, EYFP protein um, in all GABAergic cells of the zona inserta. And you can see in, in panel H that this is an image of the temporal neocortex, where you can see that these axons are densely innervating this area. And also that the innervation pattern that we observe is um, uh, quite um, particular in that there's sort of a specific gradient from um, a sort of a mediotemporal density gradient whereby in higher order areas of the, of the cortex, we see denser innervation of these zona inserta axons. And we also see in panel I, um, you can also see it in the subset in H, that um, these axons are also most densely innervating layer one, which is a, a really unique layer in neocortex where you have um, a lot of um, long range afferent systems innervating from different parts of the brain. Um, and this has sort of been coined in recent years as, as the possible sort of memory layer of neocortex. So we were really excited by these initial findings of um, the innervation pattern of this projection um, and of course, that it was indeed GABAergic. Um, if you scroll down to figure two, here we were um, sort of uh, interested in profiling the um, uh, this circuit uh, at a deeper level. So we wanted to look at functional connectivity of this afferent pathway with the local cortical circuit. Um, and in panels A through G, I addressed this by performing um, acute slice recordings combined with optogenetics. So I expressed um, an optogenetic activator in GABAergic cells of the zona inserta. So um, this means that I was able to make um, uh, acute brain slices um, of the auditory cortex um, and then record the activity from different cell types in the cortex um, and activate the innervating zona inserta afferents by applying light. Um, and what the data here reveals is that interestingly, this inhibitory projection um, actually preferentially targets inhibitory neurons of the auditory cortex. 
And this was independently verified. So this was, you know, functional looking at functional connectivity again. But we were able to verify this with an independent approach, which is shown in H through J. Um, here I was using a very particular um, uh, anterograde tracing approach to label neurons of the auditory cortex that receive uh, innervation from GABAergic zona inserta neurons. So I, I was able to label them with, again, a reporter protein here, EYFP, and then using um, single molecule fluorescent in situ hybridization to um, fluorescently label different mRNA molecules from different neocortical cell types, I was able to profile the identity of these neurons. Um, and um, analogous to what we see for the functional connectivity, what I found is that um, uh, almost all of the neurons that receive inputs from the zona inserta um, belong to um, either NDNF, somatostatin, or parvalbumin-expressing inhibitory neuron populations. So this, again, shows that um, these afferents preferentially target inhibitory neurons and also specific um, inhibitory neuron classes, which are um, uh, predominantly excitatory neuron targeting. And so um, what this means is you have a, an inhibitory projection from the zona inserta that preferentially targets inhibitory neurons in the auditory cortex that would normally inhibit local excitatory cells. So the net effect putatively of an activation of these zona inserta afferents would be uh, 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 an excitation of the local cortical circuit based on these results. If we move down to um, figure three, um, of course, um, a, a determinant of the function of this pathway is not only, not only the outputs, which we just looked at, um, but also the inputs that are integrated and so here, uh, what I did is I performed, um, I combined retrograde tracing with rabies virus tracing to map the brain-wide inputs to neurons of the zona inserta that are auditory cortex projecting. Um, and so if you look in B, you know, the zona inserta has been um, labeled with an outline. And then in this a square subset, you can see um, a, a couple of neurons that are marked with white arrows that are yellow. These are the starter cells that, um, with this rabies virus tracing approach, we are mapping on a brain-wide level um, neurons that form monosynaptic connections on these neurons. Um, and you can see that the, the subset of neurons of the zona inserta that target the auditory cortex is actually really sparse, but uh, I still find this really impressive. If you look in D, this is the full data set from this experiment. Um, even though it's such a small subset of neurons, they really integrate inputs from throughout the brain, from um, different midbrain structures, thalamic nuclei, cortical areas, and regions as far away as the hindbrain and cerebellum. Um, and obviously, this is a really rich data set, and there's a lot of things we could say about it. Um, but one thing we noticed, and this is highlighted in um, uh, panel C, is that um, some brain regions that are critically involved in uh, auditory threat learning um, also form, uh, also send direct projections to these neurons in the zona inserta. Um, so this includes, for instance, the central amygdala, the higher order auditory thalamus, 
Um, and so we were really interested to understand whether this uh, whether this projection from the zona inserted to the auditory cortex would be implicated in this behavior. And so we directly tested this in figure four. So here I combined um, uh, a freely behaving version of auditory threat conditioning with chemogenetics. Um, so um, in uh, GAD2 cremice, so again, targeting only GABAergic cells of the zona inserta, I bilaterally injected um, uh, a flexed version of um, uh, an inhibitory dread receptor. So these are um, receptors that upon binding of a specific um, inert metabolite um, are activated. And in this case, they induce um, silencing of neuronal activity. And so what I did was I implanted cannulae over the auditory cortex and locally infused this metabolite there, which allowed for silencing of the axons specifically um, in this region of the cortex. And in particular, if you look at B, this is the behavior that um, I used for this uh, experiment. This metabolite, it's called CNO. I infused it during um, just prior to the, to the se session on the second day. Um, so for those of you that might not be familiar with this behavior, it's, it's very commonly used in, um, in neuroscience, but um, just to sort of give you a brief uh, introduction. So this is a, a, a three-day associative learning paradigm where we present the animals with two different auditory stimuli. Um, uh, these are called um, condition stimuli or CSs, as you can see in the diagram. And in particular here, um, the stimuli that we use are, are complex auditory stimuli. And the reason that we do this is because um, others in, in my lab and um, also some other groups have shown that um, uh, the processing of these types of complex stimuli actually depends on the auditory cortex. And so by using these particular types of sounds, um, we make this behavior auditory cortex dependent. And so um, on the very first day in habituation, we present these sounds to the animals and they are novel stimuli, but um, they have no meaning for the animals. And one day later, we present these sounds again, but we now pair one of them, um, the CS plus, with an unconditioned stimulus, in this case, a mild um, foot shock. Um, uh, and, this, and then we leave the other CS, the CS minus, unpaired. And one day later in recall, we now present these sounds again, which have acquired an aversive significance due to this um, temporal pairing with the, with the foot shock. And we can then measure the freezing behavior of the animals in response to the presentation of these stimuli to assess um, memory recall. And what we're looking at in C is the result of this experiment. And you can see in gray, we're looking at the control animals, and in red, we're looking at the HM40GI animals. So these are the animals that have the inhibitory dread receptor expressed in the zona inserta. And what we can see is that there's less freezing to the CSs in the animals that have the HM40GI receptor. So what we observe is that when we locally silence the afferents in cortex, by applying the CNO during uh, prior to acquisition, um, when, we, when we silence these afferents during acquisition, 
there is a, a memory deficit in the recall session. Um, and interestingly, if you look in D here, we quantified a discrimination index between these two different CSs, the CS plus and the CS minus. And we actually don't see a difference between the controls and the experimental animals, which shows that um, uh, it's not the specificity of the memory that's impacted by this manipulation, but rather the strength of the memory um, that these projections are uh, impacting. And um, this uh, showed that this projection from the zona inserted to the auditory cortex is important for associative uh, threat learning. And we were really interested to understand um, what information is conveyed by this pathway um, that enables it to contribute to memory formation. And so in figure five, you will see the behavioral paradigm that I implemented under a two-photon microscope to address this question. Um, and in particular, this is sort of the, the highlight of, of the paper. Um, so basically here, what I did was the freely behaving um, threat conditioning paradigm that I just described in freely behaving animals. Um, I implemented this completely in head fixation um, under a two-photon microscope. And um, in particular, I combined this with two-photon calcium imaging of zona inserta axons in the auditory cortex. So I expressed an axon-targeted um, GCAMP, which is um, a calcium indicator in GABAergic cells of the zona inserta, and implanted a cranial window over the auditory cortex to be able to image the axons there. And the reason that we implemented this in head fixation um, is made very clear from the panel in C, which shows example axons um, from the three different sessions from a given animal, just as an example. Um, so the goal here was not only to image the same axons over days in a given animal, but really uh, we wanted to track the activity in individual synaptic boutons at every phase of the paradigm um, uh, across every trial. And so um, the paradigm itself is exactly the same as that which I just described in the previous figure um, with the, so presenting the same types of CSs um, with some key differences. Um, now that the animals are in head fixation, um, I'm using um, changes in pupil dilation as an online readout of memory. Um, and I'm also using a tail shock now um, as the unconditioned stimulus. Um, and you can see um, in the bottom part of figure 5b, um, so figure 5b shows the design of the paradigm. Um, I also show you um, what are called pseudo conditioning experiments. So this is very important. Um, so um, of course, the goal here in implementing this behavior um, is that we want to track the responses and plasticity um, in these zona inserta boutons across learning. Um, but if we observe changes um, in the responses, it could be because of learning, but it could also in principle be because of some other factors such as, you know, drift, uh, representational drift of the responses that would happen anyway from repeated presentation of the stimuli. Um, and so we implement um, pseudo conditioning experiments where this is exactly the same as the threat conditioning paradigm um, we present the same stimuli the same number of times with the key difference that on the second day, 
um, the CS and the US are presented in a random unpaired fashion um, such that um, the animals do not learn the association between these stimuli. So this serves as sort of the, the ideal control experiment. So when I set up this paradigm, I didn't know if the animals would really be able to learn the behavior, and luckily they are. So if you look in um, figure 5D, here we're looking at the average pupil um, changes over all sessions for the three different CSs. So the CS plus and CS minus, which is applicable to the threat conditioning, and then the CS12, which is from the pseudo-conditioned animals, um, and also the, the quantification of this data is shown in figure 5E. Um, so we can see that on average, um, the threat conditioned animals, if we just focus on the CS plus and CS minus, are able to um, acquire a, a threat memory to the CS plus um, if you compare habituation and recall responses. And they are also able to, on average, discriminate between the CS plus and the CS minus in the recall session. Um, however, if you look at the pseudo-conditioned animals in figure 5G, for example, um, uh, here you can actually see that the pupil dilation is decreasing over sessions as the animals effectively learn that the stimuli that they're being presented with, these auditory stimuli, don't mean anything. Um, and a really nice comparison of this data is shown in figure 5H, um, where we're quantifying the change in pupil dilation between recall and habituation for these three different stimuli. And you can see that we have sort of uh, a threat memory strength gradient, whereby for the CS12 and pseudo conditioning, the threat memory strength is low. For CS plus, it is high. And for CS minus, it's sort of um, intermediate. So we have this behavioral paradigm that we can use to study um, uh, memory formation um, in head-fixed animals, looking at you know, the activity in individual synapses. Um, so the question, of course, is, OK, the behavior works, but what is happening in the, in the boutons? Um, so if you go to figure six um, here in uh, panel A, we are looking at the responses in all of the boutons from um, all of the sessions, specifically in response to the presentation of the CS+. So this is, again, from all animals. And um, uh, again, we were looking at the responses in individual boutons, and the only boutons that I analyzed were um, those that could be tracked across all sessions. So this is a paired analysis. Um, and what we can see if we just focus on uh, the heat map for habituation is that the presentation of the sound, which is indicated by these vertical gray lines, um, that this shows that some of the boutons yield either positive um, or negative responses to the presentation of this uh, stimulus, as is indicated by um, the uh, uh, red or um, blue shading in the heat map. And this is really interesting because it shows that Zona and Serta um, uh, axons are able to encode, uh, sort of, they're able to transmit auditory information. Um, and this is not necessarily a, a given in the sense that um, we're looking at sort of a non-canonical pathway from the zona inserted to the auditory cortex. It's not a classic thalamic projection 
um, uh, but it's actually able to encode this type of information. So that was sort of the first finding. Um, and then, of course, the question is, okay, are, if there are auditory responses, do we see plasticity due to learning? And the answer to this question, as you can see, is also yes. So if we look at the evolution of responses from habituation to acquisition, we see that these changes begin to manifest during acquisition. Um, and then in recall, these responses become even stronger. And this is represented in, in different ways throughout this figure. So you can see a quantification of um, these responses in B. In C, we have some uh, beautiful individual Bhutan examples. These are from two different Bhutans within the same field of view from a given mouse. And you can see how this plasticity that we observe is, is also observable at the level of, of, of the individual Bhutan. Um, a, a key thing that I'll point out is that in figure 6A, um, all of the responses in these heat maps have been organized. They've been um, adjusted to be sorted based on the magnitude of the response during the sound presentation, which is why they're all moving from uh, red at the top to blue on the bottom. But on the right side of each of these heat maps, there is um, an ID bar that's been provided which shows you the rearrangement that we see over sessions for each of the Bhutan. So you can sort of track um, where they move. And this really highlights the high degree of rearrangement that we have in this system due to learning, um, such that um, the plasticity we observe occurs in all directions. So there are positive responding Bhutans in habituation that undergo positive potentiation in recall, there are positive responding Bhutans in habituation that undergo negative potentiation and recall. And the same goes for uh, negative responding Bhutans in habituation. So it's really happening um, in all directions. Um, and then throughout the rest of the figure, um, we quantified this, um, these plastic changes using a number of different approaches. Um, this work was done in collaboration with the lab of Henning Sprekeler at the TU Berlin. Um, and uh, with him and a, a really great PhD student in his lab, Yoram, we were able to show, for instance, in panels D and E, that um, looking at decoding analyses showed that um, the ability of these axons to discriminate between the CS plus and the CS minus, um, it's that this, the system is able to do it during habituation prior to learning, and this ability gets even uh, improved uh, between habituation and recall. Um, another interesting thing to point out is um, in panel F, for example, and you can also see this in the heat map in A. Um, so after the delivery of the shock stimulus, we also see a response in the Bhutans. So what this means is that these axons not, not only um, encode auditory information, um, but they also encode um, uh, uh, aversive uh, uh, sort of primary reinforcers such as aversive shock stimuli. Um, some other key things here. So for instance, if you look at panels um, 6i, um, here we're looking at the same uh, data for the pseudo-conditioned animals, which I told you are the controls. And here you can see that these responses um, actually reduce over sessions. 
So um, we're seeing the opposite effect um, in the control animals, which really highlights that the plasticity that we see um, in the threat conditioned animals is due to the acquisition of memory um, and not because of some other, um, some other possible feature of the experiment. Um, uh, I won't go over necessarily all of the panels here, but um, for instance, I can highlight uh, panels M and N. So here we're looking at the relationship between pupil dilation as a readout of memory and the absolute bouton response for every CS for every animal in habituation and recall. And what you can see is that this relationship is um, that there's only a correlation observed um, in panel N for the recall um, session, which highlights that um, um, this plasticity that we observe really encodes memory strength, um, which is a, a really interesting uh, result. So in this, in this figure, I have highlighted to you this unique plasticity that we observe um, in these uh, zona inserted projections in the auditory cortex, and that it's highlighted by this particular bidirectional plasticity that occurs during learning. And we thought that this was super interesting, um, especially because uh, you might remember that I highlighted in, in my introduction that, um, um, that up until now, the only systems that had been studied in the context of, of um, memory encoding in neocortical circuits um, in terms of top-down memory encoding were long-range excitatory projections, which I told you um, are positive, have sort of positive responses to sensory stimuli that undergo positive potentiation due to learning. So if, if we were to make a heat map of those results, um, it would have sort of this um, uh, red signal that would become increasingly more red up in recall. And what this means is that these negative responses that we observe have actually not been observed before. And so we, we thought they were really interesting and we wanted to understand them better. And this brings us to figure seven, which is the final main figure of the paper, where we decided to parse this out further by separating the groups of boutons, the, the, the total pool of boutons into two groups. Um, and in particular, we uh, decided to call them the positive response during recall or PR boutons or negative response during recall or NR boutons, because what we did was we just took the group of boutons um, and separated them based on their responses in recall. Um, but again, this is still um, a paired analysis such that every bouton was um, then tracked from, uh, you know, across all sessions. It's just been separated into two groups. And so, if we focus on panels A through D for these two different PR and NR bouton groups, um, we can see that interestingly, on average in habituation, so this is the light blue traces, um, on average for both of these groups, the response is actually positive to the presentation of the CS plus. Um, and we can also see that in panels C and D, that um, the change that is occurring between habituation and recall begins to manifest during memory acquisition itself. Um, and um, we wanted to piece this out a bit further on, uh, on uh, across trials. And so this is what we're doing in panels E and F. So here you can see that we're looking at 
um, binned trial responses across habituation, acquisition, and recall for these two different groups. And this reveals a really, some really striking differences, um, especially in the acquisition session. So if you focus on the, the middle panel, um, if we look at this for the, the, the PR boutons on the top, we can see that across acquisition, um, the trace is kind of flat. So basically, there's a stabilization of these positive responses over acquisition. But then if you look between the end of acquisition and the start of recall, um, there's a, a, a strong um, potentiation of these responses. So we see that there's this stabilization feature that then there's a contribution of memory consolidation to the, to the uh, responses that we see in recall. Um, but the NR boutons, so these negative responding boutons look completely different. So if you look in acquisition here, so in panel F, actually this transformation um, from positive to negative occurs during the course of the session and it occurs very rapidly. You can see that um, it really transforms from a positive to a negative response over the course of the session. But here we also have um, a contribution of memory consolidation in the sense that from the end of acquisition to the start of recall, there is also um, a, a potentiation of these negative responses. And just briefly, what we're looking at in um, G through I, this is again, computational work from our collaborators, um, Henning and Yoram, um, where they basically showed that at the population level, it is really these negative responding um, boutons that drive the changes during memory acquisition itself. And so um, what we're like uh, to sort of just give a brief recap, we're looking at, you know, a long range inhibitory projection from the zona inserta to the auditory cortex, um, which um, uh, uh, during memory acquisition, we have a segregation of these responses into two, two groups that have completely different response properties, different temporal dynamics. Um, and in particular, it is these unique negative responding boutons that have not been observed before in excitatory systems that were previously studied that really drive the changes during online memory formation. Um, and so, um, yeah, so I guess some, you know, brief key takeaway points. Again, it's, it's a long range inhibitory projection that is mostly targeting local inhibitory neurons. Um, that undergoes this really unique plasticity um, during learning. And so um, ultimately we, we show here that um, these projections from the zona inserta um, definitely contribute to memory encoding in the neocortex, uh, again, via this really unique mechanism. And uh, I'm happy to take any questions you might have about, about this work. Well, thank you so much, Anna for guiding us through your um, research. Um, this was really uh, wonderful. And, Thank you. Um, yeah, and it it's a lot of work <laughs> and a lot of <laughs> elegant work that requires a lot of skills. So um, just to highlight that and um, because if people are not from the field, it's sometimes I think, um, you know, not easy to understand what you need, the skills you need, yeah. <laughs> very precise surgeries and so on. So, and to photon 
microscopy skills and and you know um, labeling um, so this is wonderful work and what I really loved is that you focused on inhibition back when I was a PhD student and master's student and so on I was um, and later on a little bit I also focused on inhibition that's why <laughs> and you know it was not easy because not too many people cared about inhibition so I'm really happy that that changed and that you could, you know, precisely pinpoint the importance and involvement of of inhibition in memory. So um, again, <laughs> this yeah. is really wonderful. <laughs> and um, I thought that was really interesting that you could correlate really these boutons with the with the memory formation there's also something i observed um, when i studied compulsion and plasticity do you in the follow-up work you may be doing right now are you looking at um, what type of mechanisms are really involved in these uh, bouton formation let's say what type of um, receptors are maybe crucial for this plasticity to happen or um, maybe in the circuitry um, you know is there any AMPA NMDA receptor um, ratio changes or things like that are you thinking about analyzing that further so so this is a great question so um so for instance, one starting point for trying to think about how to move forward with this is, um, as you kind of indicated, where does this plasticity come from? What, what mediates it? Um, and um, we actually did some analyses which are buried in uh, one of the supplemental figures where, for example, we um, wanted to understand, okay, in a given field of view, we have two different types of boutons, let's say these positive responders and these negative responders, um, are they present on the same axons or do they actually have, or do you have sort of mixed response types on a given axon? And what we found um, is that in all likelihood, um, you have um, uh, one response type on one axon type, uh, on one axon and then uh, another response type on another axon, which suggests that um, probably there are two different subtypes of neurons in the zona inserta that send these projections. So it's two different groups of cells. And um, what, uh, what I mean to highlight with that is that um, in all likelihood, the plasticity that we are seeing um, it is mediated by changes in uh, firing rate at the level of the soma of these neurons in the zona inserta because um, it would be a change that's driving um, changes uh, in all of the synapses on a given axon in the in the cortex. So there could also be um, a contribution of local mechanisms. So for instance, um, maybe um, uh, local presynaptic me mechanisms mediated by G-protein-coupled receptors or something like that. Um, we can't rule that out, but in all likelihood, this is mediated by changes uh, at the level of the soma. But I do think it would be really interesting to explore um, if there 
is any sort of uh, local mechanisms that that shape this. Um, and then I also think it would be interesting. So another thing that you kind of alluded to with asking about, for instance, like AMPA and MDA ratios, um, it would also be really interesting, for instance, with you know slice recordings to um, assess how these plastic changes um, impact uh, local circuit activity with the postsynaptic targets that it recruits. So this is kind of a, a major open question from the paper in the sense that you know we showed that um, that um, these axons mostly target certain types of inhibitory neurons. And then of course we showed that there's this plasticity which is bidirectional, so it's not so uh, easy to come up with a, a, an answer of how you think this is affecting the local circuit. Um, so what it means is that we we know that this is impacting the local circuit, but we actually don't have a good understanding of, of the effect of this plasticity on local neuronal processing in the auditory cortex. So this is, this is a, a major question for future study, um, I would say. Yeah, that's really interesting. I wonder if, you know, the release probability would change, um, you know, while um, acquiring, you know, acquiring the memory and then um, retaining it and, and recalling it over time on this. Um, and um, do you, I don't know currently right now, I know that there is for um, for different neurotransmitters um, these um, these um, signaling um, genetic encoded signaling tools uh, that you can basically visualize differences in neurotransmitter release. Um, I don't know. Is that something you would consider since you do two photon imaging and you know imaging in the um, the restrained animal i think and you have a window in anyways uh would you consider using those um imaging techniques um i've never tried uh imaging with anything other than gcamp i also find these um um, especially because this has really, you know, emerged in the last couple of years that there are so many more indicators now for looking at specific um, responses for certain neurotransmitter types. Um, I have not um, thought of a specific experiment yet where I would want to implement this, but this is definitely within the realm of possibility. And it could be really interesting also for exploring, like we were just talking about, you know, um, the effect of these afferents on um, different um, local cell types, right? So that, that could be a really interesting tool for um, starting to parse that out. So I think that's a, yeah, I think that's a nice idea. Yeah, we had our guest speaker group here and they were able to distinguish um, signaling um, up to three neurons. I can send you the paper. I don't know if mm -hmm. you read it. That's really would be probably really interesting for you since um, yeah since you have the window in and um, yeah that 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 the, and they are happy to collaborate with people because they just mm -hmm. developed this and now they would really like people to use it and it it was very impressive so I think that would be really interesting and um, yeah, 
Do you, did you think about kind of um, using disease models or stressing out the animals um, maybe during development or so and see if there are differences um, in the circuitry um, and yeah involved this 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 pathway um, that is involved in mean, let's say maybe if they were if there was maternal stress um, that you know this pathway is stronger or weaker um, I definitely think that um, uh, it would be interesting to uh, explore other sort of aversive uh, paradigms or anxiety like paradigms um, to see sort of the involvement generally of the zona inserta but also this projection to the auditory cortex um, um, uh, your first sorry your first question was about uh, I think I got lost yeah, the first yeah, I think disease models or like, you know, stress. I mean, you could go on forever. There would be so many <laughs> things you could do. <laughs> you know, you could do acute, like chronic stress in the animal maternal cells or, you know, disease models, autism-like maybe, because I think that would be really interesting because, um, you know, you have in humans the sensitivity to noise especially that kind of elicits um, anxiety in humans. So I don't know if autism, like animals, I'm not sure about noise. I used shank mice, but it was more, my work was more related to compulsion. I'm not mm -hmm. sure if they have this noise sensitivity. I mean, you could probably, you know, research the next 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, is there something that kind of made you think about using disease one? Um, I think that, um, so I guess my first starting point is that we know so little about the zona inserta that um, uh, I my, I really want to understand, sort of, sort of broadly speaking, what behaviors it's, it's implicated in, what is its connectivity, what is its function? Um, and then I think it would be really cool to explore this um, uh, further in certain disease models. What is clear from recent, from work in recent years on the zona inserta is that it's implicated in um, a lot of different behaviors um, and that it pro probably processes many different types of stimuli. So it's easy to imagine that it might play a role in many things that we have not yet explored um, and could also be um, uh, disease relevant in ways that we we haven't yet studied. Um, one fun fact about the zona inserta that is sort of relevant for disease is that um, it's actually a well-established target for deep brain stimulation, um, which is, um, and it's specifically targeted in patients that have movement disorders like Parkinson's disease. Um, so this allows for the alleviation of, of motor symptoms like tremor. Um, so um, that's that's a bit unrelated, but um, it, it shows that there's sort of therapeutic potential to studying the zona inserta that I think if we can better understand um, the function of this this brain structure, it could also yield like therapeutic insights that could also be studied um, in different uh, many different models. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and I, I thought about that that, 
I mean, it's kind of interesting that we just go ahead and do deep brain stimulations in humans and we don't <laughs> even know why it works. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, um, and then we, in hindsight, go in and actually study different brain regions involvement. But um, yeah, it's really interesting that this, this brain region is involved in so many different kind of behavioral um, tasks. And I think that's why maybe uh, a lot of people scared away from it uh, historically because they love like brain regions like the amygdala and so on that are mm -hmm. pretty straightforward or people at least thought that they are pretty straightforward um so when you when you look at the projections um does the um, the amount of boutons they reach change um after this behavior paradigm did you look into that? Like, um, do the axons, the projections make more connections or is it just more in intensity, basically? Yeah, this is a great question. So um, um, you can, uh, you can, I mean, of course, it's only one animal example, but you can kind of see this in figure 5C with um, the axons from this uh, one animal example. Um, and this is pretty representative in the sense that, interestingly, we really I don't really see any evidence of structural plasticity in this system. So um, the number of boutons or like dramatic changes in the way the axons look, I, I don't see this. So it's really uh, functional plasticity that, that I see. So it's really that sort of the strength of the responses at individual boutons that were already there. Um, this is mostly what we observe. Of course, there is some degree of natural rearrangement over days just because the animals are alive. So, and of course, when I'm finding this same field of view in the window over days, um, it doesn't always look exactly the same, but for the most part, the axons really don't uh, change their structure. Yeah, that is, that is interesting. And that could give you already clues for, you know, you could exclude already some mechanisms of, you know, um, through like mediating plasticity if if that's the case and um yeah it would be interesting to see if um neurotransmitter release probability really changes because i would assume it would if if that's the case um so yeah mm -hmm. it would be really interesting to follow your work um so are you going to continue um to work in in this you know, on this projection in this um, in this brain regions, or are you planning to also switch into something else? It's just for us to have a preview of your work. Thank you. <laughs> um, so my plan is to keep working on the Zona Inserta, um, but I uh, I have big plans to sort of branch out. Um, I'm still I'm still really interested in the cortical projection. Um, but like I said, the Zona Inserta also has uh, connectivity with a lot of other brain regions and is implicated in pr probably many different behaviors. So um, in my future work, I will um, really start to explore the function of a lot of these other different circuits. Um, um, but I will also keep working on the behavior that um, I've described in this paper. Um, uh, because, yeah, it's a really great model for studying memory formation, and it's also 
um, you know, a leading model for studying, you know, the encoding of, of, of fear and anxiety um, in brain circuits. So, um, yeah, so some things in, in the future will be related to this work, but I will also branch out. So definitely keep an eye out for um, my future work. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. One more question. Do you plan or would you have the availability since you said you think that you know it the the key lies in the soma uh, and they are kind of labeled so um would you be able to do like laser capture or something like that and then send it out for um, um rna sequencing to maybe get a clue of what's going on in the soma i know it's a waste kind of a waste of animals to kind of stop probably in between uh, paradigm um, steps and then and then do cell capture but it would maybe be interesting no this would be something like this would be great i would love to have a, a really good way to you know figure out what cells in the zona inserta are sending these projections what i think is so difficult is that I would never, I, at least until now, I haven't thought of a good way to be able to relate the imaging that I'm able to do of the axons in the cortex with anything that I could do afterwards in the zona inserta. Like I would never be able to know which axons derived from exactly which cells. Um, and so, but at least there are other ways that this could be approached and, and what you suggested could be one of them. Like at least looking at, um, for instance, I don't know, single cell changes in the zona inserted before and after learning, right? Like this might already reveal some, you know, provide some really interesting insights. So um, that could help explain what we're seeing in the cortex. Yeah, exactly. It would, it would be a starting point. Um, that would be really interesting. So, well, there's a lot interesting work ahead that's, you know, that shows that how important and interesting your work is because it opens up so many more experiments, questions, <laughs> endeavors <laughs> that can cover, I think, decades. So unless we like have soon robots doing it all. <laughs> 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 um, so uh, yeah, again, congratulations. Thank you for taking the time out of your really busy schedule to uh, come and present your beautiful work and yeah good luck i don't i know you don't need it because <laughs> you have a wonderful record of getting a lot of major grants and awards so um, anyways good luck for the future and we will be ex uh, excited to read what's coming out next <laughs> so thank you thanks so much for inviting me this was really fun i really enjoyed it well, that's that's the also very important part that the you know you the speaker enjoyed it too. So that's perfect. Um, <laughs> <laughs> enjoy the rest of your day, and everyone, thank you for coming. Um, and yeah, follow the club if you like discussions like this. Uh, we have um, a little bit kind of a different, um, cl more climate related talk next about the discovery of rivers under the Antarctic ice sheet and how they contribute to um, ice melting. So um, yeah, if you think that's interesting, join us again. And thank you, Anna. Uh, enjoy the rest of your week. And uh, it was really nice talking to you.
You too. Bye-bye. I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you.